0: Well, thank you for praying for me and Curtis while we were gone this last week. It was a good week. If you wanted to look up the church where we were, we were at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for a week for a conference. Um, So our time there was a lot of training, a lot of instruction, teaching. But then as well, what this church is committed to doing is... uh, Helping other churches to refine and become more biblically faithful in all things that they do. Uh, Mark Devers, the pastor there, they put out a lot of uh, materials through an organization called Nine Marks. So we'd read a lot of the books, read through a lot of the material. um, But... We're excited about an opportunity to go to this particular conference because in addition to the training, it's an immersion in everything that they do as a church. So we're there on Sunday morning and then we go on Sunday evening and then we go to a Bible study and go to a a membership class and then go to one of their members meetings and then go to an elders meeting and, and, and basically see how they apply God's word to everything that they do. It's a church of about 900 members a large church. They've filled up their building. Uh, They could easily grow bigger. They only have one morning service. But what they've decided to do is to say, you know, I think that We've grown enough. It's already difficult enough to manage 900 members. And so they are not trying, per se, to assimilate more people. They're trying to care for the people they have. And they're using their resources to revitalize other local churches so that they're healthy, so that more people can go to those churches. As well, they're trying to do that nationally and globally. And so that's how we got connected with them. Our chief desire here at Veritas Church has always been to be biblically faithful. That is number one. We want to be biblically faithful um, and assimilating people into what we do is a far, far, far priority down the list for what does it matter if we're not bringing people into something that is honoring to God? So we're always looking for ways to refine that and to do what we do better. And this provided a great opportunity for that. So thank you for praying for us. I I do think that we narrowly escaped our stay in what I'm pretty sure was the most dangerous hotel in Washington, D.C. I will never let Curtis book a hotel for any trip that I'm going on again. Half a star from Yelp should have been a clue, I think, That's half of one star out of five stars. One of the amenities listed was bulletproof windows for the hotel room. He tried to tell me that's because the president stayed there. (laughs) No, he did not. (laughs) The president doesn't know this hotel exists. It's a Howard Johnson. We affectionately called it the Hojo for the time that we were there. And it was rough. Several times I feared for my life, genuinely. One evening, Curtis was on his way home. We had uh, separated and he was riding the subway back late at night and was confronted by three men that said, what's in your backpack? (laughs) To which he responded, my Bible, (laughs) which kind of freaked him out. And he shared with them, I was hiding somewhere prefer to do my evangelism in safety so <laughs> but i was proud of curtis so anyway we made it back thanks to your prayers i'm sure i also wanted to thank you i talked to uh, pastor steve who um, was here last week and and preached in my place and he had very good things to say about you so i know that i i reached out to many of you and said hey could you I just welcome him, make him feel hospitable, uh, extend hospitality, make him feel welcomed. And so a mission accomplished. You definitely did that. He enjoyed his time here. Um, he said that um, it was a very sweet time, a very sweet congregation. So that was cool to hear. Uh, thank you for doing that and, and welcoming him. So we've got some work to do today. We're going to get back to Genesis, going to be in chapter 43. Let's pray and we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for time that you've given us this morning to come together as your church family and read your word. I pray that you would help me to preach well and help us all to listen well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As far as Jacob knows, who really is the main character of this last part of Genesis, it's focusing on Jacob and his family. And as far as Jacob knows, his uh, favorite son, Joseph, who was one of only two boys that was born to his beloved wife, Rachel, Uh, his favored son has been dead for over 20 years now. So he has uh, tried to move on and has has lived with the uh, reality of his son being gone and dead. He doesn't know what what we know. He doesn't know that Joseph was only sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and by God's totally unpredictable providence now rules as governor over all of Egypt and recently, in chapter 42, has been reunited with his brothers, unbeknownst to his brothers. So they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. But there's been a sort of reunion as these brothers are coming to Egypt looking for grain because they're in the middle of a a famine that has completely wiped out Canaan, where they're from. And so here they end up in Egypt, and they're under this administrator who has planned for this famine and who has more than enough. And they're asking for help, having no idea that this is actually their brother that they sold into slavery over 20 years before. And in the point where we are in our story, Joseph has not revealed his identity. He's, uh, he's hiding. He's hiding. He's not coming out with who he is. And there's been some opportunities to do that. Uh, He clearly is not bent on revenge. He clearly is not looking for payback. Uh, But he he is concealing his identity. I think it's next week we'll get to the actual revealing of who he is to his brothers. But at this point, he's keeping that quiet. The reason, if you remember, and if you were here when we looked at chapter 42... The reason that Joseph is concealing his identity is because he means to test his brother's repentance. He needs to figure out if these brothers are changed men. Because if they're the same men that they were over 20 years ago, then he's going to deal with them one way. However, he knows God is a good God. God is a gracious God. God is a powerful God. If these men have changed and if they're different and if they are, in fact, repentant, then he's going to deal with them very differently. So we know this is true. We know that Joseph, as far as he can, has already forgiven his brothers for what they've done. Now, when I say as far as he can, what I mean is that there's at least two types, two levels of forgiveness that your Bible talks about. One is an unconditional forgiveness and the other is a conditional forgiveness. The unconditional forgiveness is it doesn't matter whether the person says sorry to me, whether they apologize, ask forgiveness, express their desire to be reconciled. It doesn't matter. I can forgive them in my heart. And that's how the New Testament talks about it. if you're there and you remember your brother and he's done something against you and you want to worship God. You should forgive him in your heart before you move forward trying to honor the Lord. So, we would call that like an attitude forgiveness or a dispositional forgiveness. In other words, your disposition toward the person is I don't wish you harm, I want good things for you. I'm going to do my best to put this behind me and not grow bitter and angry. And you can do that, you can do that as a Christian. And the, the basis for doing that, Jesus said, is listen, just remember how many times I've forgiven you. Okay, just think of what you've done and how I've forgiven you. And that is the basis for you to be able to move on and forgive someone who sinned against you. But there's also a conditional forgiveness. And that's not what we're throwing around, and that's not what we're saying that everybody needs to do, because there's also verses like in Luke that say, if your brother repents, forgive him. It's conditional. We might call that a relational forgiveness. In other words, two people cannot be reconciled unless the offender comes and says and admits their sin and their folly and confesses and asks forgiveness. Will you forgive me? I have done you wrong. Will you forgive me? And what does that mean when we say, will you forgive me? It means, will you Will you graciously put this behind us? Will you overlook this so that we can have relationship again? So that we can have fellowship again? Now, a Christian should always long for that. And a Christian should always want that. But a Christian can't always secure that. It's going to take two to actually have reconciliation. So Joseph's in between. Do you see that? He wants to be reconciled to his brothers. He has a heart for his brothers. He's already had to leave once. He's going to leave in the text again today and cry because he has so much compassion for them even though they wanted him dead. But before there can be reconciliation, he needs to really see, are these changed men? Are they repentant? Has God broken through? So, We need to bring this all together because this is really like one sermon in three parts as we look at these few chapters. Because what we're examining is how does God bring someone to repentance? How How does He do that? How does He shatter a hardened heart? How does He soften hearts? How does He shine into a darkened conscience, a conscience of someone who has done wrong but says, I've done right? How does God break that person down to where they're really repentant and turning from what they've done? So we saw three of them in chapter 42, and we'll see two more today. But here were the three, because they all go together, that we saw in chapter 42. The first thing that God did was he brought the pain of physical and material wanting. This was the famine. The famine. God's in control of all things, including famines. So God brought a famine to Jacob and his family. He brought stress on their life. He brought pain into their life. So they couldn't just, just go as if nothing had happened. They're going to they're be put into a state where they have to Think about their life and examine their life and think about why things are going the way they're going. And so God does this with his people. He introduces, it's the Lord's good discipline, we would say. God introduces pain into the life of those that he loves to cause them to examine God, to examine themselves, to examine their life. So in this case, it was the famine that we're told about over and over and over again. He brings the pain of physical or material wanting. The second thing, and really two parts, was the harsh way that God, through Joseph, dealt with these brothers. Right? There was the harsh words from God through Joseph, and there was harsh treatment. Remember, it was so, it was so harsh and it was so rough as Joseph dealt with his brothers that um, not only were we told that he was speaking to them roughly, but then when they went back and recounted everything that happened to their dad, Jacob, they said, this, this guy really spoke rough to us. He was not nice. was not nice. It was just a a very hard edge about what he had to say. And God was moving these brothers to repentance. Harsh words. Joseph was, as our study in a couple weeks coming up, he was an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And not only did he speak roughly and harshly to these men, he also dealt with them roughly and harshly. No back rubs. Right, no, ba- it's gonna be okay, guys. Hey, it's all right. No biggie, no biggie. So, you, so, you, so you auctioned me off at not the Not that, not the end of the world, you know. Uh, you can do it. I'm sure. You know, your heart is gold. He didn't do that. He dealt with them very roughly. Have you been roughed up by God? Been roughed up reading God's word? Oh, I didn't want to read that today. Thanks, God, for ruining my quiet time. <laughs> you ever thought that? This is not what I wanted to read. This is not why I have a quiet time. I have a quiet time to make me smile and to give me you know, that, little, that extra shot in the arm that I need to do all the great things that I'm going to do today. That's why I have a quiet time. I don't want this verse. That's why I don't read Job. Lamentations. I hate that book. That's why we do things like that. And we have certain things that we gravitate toward because we don't want to be dealt with. Have you ever just accidentally read something in God's Word that pierced you? Like, I don't want to read that. I, I, I think I'm doing what it's talking about and God's angry about this and it's calling me to repentance and this means I need to change things and I need to do things differently and that's embarrassing or humiliating or totally uncomfortable for me. So I don't want to do that. Well, God loves you. And because God loves you, He will deal with us roughly at times. He will deal with us harshly. Now let me make this very clear. This is not being mean. This is not mean. It is actually kind and loving. Amen. It is kind and loving. And when God speaks to us this way, it is not a soft way. It's a hard way. And there are hard edges to it. And there's a way that God comes to us and maybe you've had friends come to you when you've been in sin. And there's a hard edge to what they're saying. And they're making it very clear. I'm for you, but I'm against you in what you're doing right now. And you need to stop. And I'm not going to support you in what you're doing. I'm here, and I love you, but you need to turn. That's not mean, it's loving. I've certainly sinned against my boys in saying harsh words when I should not say harsh words. When I've dealt with my children harshly, when I had no reason to deal with them harshly. But there are times where they need a harsh word. If they're playing foolishly in the swimming pool, right, and they're jumping off platforms that are 10 feet above the shallow end of the pool, and they're throwing things at each other's heads and holding one another underneath the water, I'm not going to come to the pool and say, uh, hey guys, hey, uh, can I make a suggestion? <laughs> I, just wanna, I just want you to maybe consider some options here. You know, just consider some, some options. You know, your, your brother's on the sidewalk bleeding and he's not breathing. And I'm just wondering if maybe there's something... Maybe we should just change our course. No. Hey! Stop it! Oh. That's appropriate there, isn't it? Stop it right now. Don't do that. This is not safe. Well, this is often what we do when we come to other Christians, isn't it? That we're concerned about and worried about. Stop it. Now, how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That means the people that kiss you all the time. What is Proverbs 27 saying about them? They're actually your enemies. They actually don't love you. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend will stick by you, won't they? And they'll say what you don't want them to hear when you need to hear it. And they won't enable you and they won't help you when you're in sin. And do you know how you know who your real friends are? Because your enemies will give you harsh words too. So enemies give you harsh words. Friends give you harsh words. Here's one practical way to know who are your friends and who are your enemies. Your friends will say harsh words to you. Some weeks go by. Some months go by. And they're still there. They're still there. Now, if they're Christians and you're in rebellion, they may be there in a different way. But they'll be there on their knees. Praying for you. Hoping for you waiting for you, but they'll be there. They don't enjoy it. Your enemy enjoys it. You have people that you can say harsh words to and it feels good. Right? Oh, that was a load off of my chest. I just needed to air that out. I'm glad I did that. That's because they're your enemy. <laughs> but when you have to say those words to your friend, have you had to do that before? It's painful, isn't it? That's agonizing. But love's got to win out. Harsh words. Harsh treatment. So friends, my encouragement would be do not resent or resist harsh words from God or friends. Don't resist them. Don't resent them. Welcome it. The third thing that we've seen as God is dealing with stirring repentance in these men is solitude solitude. God made it so that these brothers were uh, alone with themselves and their sin and their thoughts and what they knew of God's Word. It is a common tactic to just try, especially in our 21st century American culture, to be so busy that I never am alone with myself. I'm never alone with my thoughts because there's so much noise that is always coming in. It's a dangerous place to be. Especially when we're called to meditate on God's Word. You cannot meditate on God's Word with a bunch of noise. Especially when we're called to examine our own hearts. There is a level of introspection that is absolutely necessary for a Christian. It can tip into morbid introspection. But that is no reason to throw the introspective baby out with the bathwater. We're supposed to examine ourselves to look at ourselves, to ask God to search us and, 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 and expose our sin. And in order to do that, we do need solitude. We do need time between us and the Lord and God forces the circumstances in a way so these brothers end up in jail. They end up in prison. And in fact, it was there where we began to see some fruit of repentance. So we have seen some good signs of change, but God's going to continue to work with them. Remember what they said in the jail, verse 21 and 22 of chapter 42? Then they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Friends, those are really good words. Those are good words, these boys are saying, but they're just words. Now, Joseph may pray that these words are from a contrite heart, but, friends, actions are how we validate the heart. By their fruit, you will know them, not by their words. By their fruit. Are they good words? These are good words. But, these boys have a ways to go. These boys have a ways to go. For example, they're confessing their sin to one another, but they're not confessing their sin to their dad, Jacob, and they're not confessing their sin to God. That's important. There's more repentance that needs to take place. So, God needs to continue to drive these men toward open confession and open repentance and open fruit. In two more ways we see in our text today. Two more ways following those first three. Let's read the first five verses of chapter 43. Now the famine was severe. There it is again. Severe famine. Severe famine. We're reminded of this over and over And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. So the physical, the material wanting has not let up. They're still in a stressful situation. The pressure is on. The famine is not letting up. And they have no control over it. They have no control over it. That's the good thing about famines. (laughs) The good thing about famines is you have no control over them. There are things in our life that we think that we can control and we try to control. You can't do that with a famine. You just have to deal with it. I bring that up intentionally. James Boyce said this, we want a good life, but most of us are willing to endure things that are not so good so long as we are in control of the situation. We will bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. We will willingly submit to great hardships as long as we are doing the submitting and retainability to manipulate the difficult circumstances to our ends. Some persons will die for what they believe if the choice is theirs. The difficulty comes when control of life passes out of our hands and we see ourselves as the one acted upon rather than as the actor. We resist necessity. So, The next way God shines on these darkened consciences and stirs these men to repentance is what James Boyce calls an ordained pattern of necessity. What we have now from God is an ordained pattern of necessity, which simply means God is impressing upon these boys that they are not in control. And one of the ways that God moves His people toward repentance is ordaining their life in such a way that we learn that we are not in control. Control is an an illusion, right? Some of you are thinking, what? Oh no. It's true, isn't it? Have you learned that you are not in control of the world around you or the people around you? You're not. We're not in control of the world around us. We're not in control of the people around us. Have you learned this? And this is very freeing. It's very freeing. Have you learned that God does not require you to be in control of the people around you? So the people around you are not behaving the way that they should. God does not require you to control them. God does not require us to control the world. He requires us to be faithful no matter what is going on in the world that we're in. And no matter what is going on in the people around us. We're called to be faithful, but we are not called to control. God only calls you to control one thing in his word. Yourself. That's the hardest, isn't it? Well, this is actually what God does. He says, the only one you are to control is yourself. And and then he tells us, and you can't do that. (laughs) He's building tension for us. You must exercise self-control. We want to use all of our time controlling others. I'm not the problem. It's these people around me. So I can control them. This everything will be fine. Believe me, I'm good. And so we don't control ourselves. all our efforts are trying to control others, but God never says to, you know, to exercise others' control. It's self-control. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But then God says, and good luck with that because you can't do it. <laughs> I mean, you're sinful. You're, you're, you're bent on sin. You've got the flesh, the world. Satan is against you. You must control yourself, but you cannot control yourself. And then there's this very important phrase. Without God's help. That's the tension. You're dependent on God. You cannot, Christian, do the things that God requires of you apart from His help. We cannot do the things that God requires of us apart from His grace. And so one way that God awakens us to sin and to stir us to repentance is to show us that we are not in control. And when we discover that we are not in control, or when we lose control, we are more inclined to acknowledge that this is God's world and cry out to him. So it's a really good thing when that illusion comes down, because it's not real. You're not really controlling anything around you. But as long as you think that you're controlling everything around you, you don't cry out to God. You don't need to. You got it covered. So God, in his grace, to bring you to repentance, he will make it very evident. Hey, listen, buddy. You're not in control of anything. Nothing. And this is what God is doing with these men. So the first way that they learn it is just in that verse 1. They can't control the weather. Weather is a great lesson that God is always teaching us. You cannot control the weather. A lot of things that you may think that you control, but I think we all know that we can't control the weather. Have you ever had your plans change drastically because of the weather? I'm always looking at the weather, just fascinated by the weather forecast. Want to know the percentage of rain and when the sun's going to rise and set and what the humidity is going to be. And then I like to make my plans according to that weather. And I'm very upset and very frustrated when the weather doesn't do what the weather is supposed to do. And so I'll say things like, well, this is just great. It wasn't supposed to rain today. And I wonder what God thinks when we say things like that. Really? I apologize. Somebody should have let me know. I will not make that mistake again. It will only rain when it is supposed to rain from here on out. This happened on our last day on our our trip to Washington, D.C. We planned this trip. Looked at the weather forecast and and picked this last day that we were going to be there to do some sightseeing. The conference was going to end at 9.30 in the morning. Our flight didn't leave until early the next morning, so we were going to have a whole day. For two guys who like history and have never been to Washington, D.C., it was a great opportunity. So what do we do? The weather looked good, so we bought our tickets to ride on this bus trying right, just be the corny, classic tourist going around with our cameras, dropped off at every stop in Washington, D.C. We bought our tickets ahead of time because we got the weather forecast. We woke up Monday morning to eight inches of snow <laughs> in March. Everywhere we go, we're listening to locals saying, I can't believe it's snowing today. It never snows here like this in March. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you. Apparently, we needed to learn some Lesson today, it never snows except this one day that we're here with tickets for the bus. (laughs) So I ended up in a Starbucks reading all day, which is what I do here. (laughs) Let's keep reading because God has more lessons, not just the weather, not just through this famine to show these boys that they are not in control. Verses 6 through 10, Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly? as to tell the man that you had another brother. They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So a couple more lessons that, are, that are, they're learning here. God is, is the one who's in control. God is the one who is organizing all of their circumstances. They know that they cannot control people. That's the second lesson they learn. You can't control people. You can't control the weather. You can't control people. Try as hard as you want to control the people around you. You just, you cannot do it. Their dad is upset with them saying, why did you bring this upon me? Like, we, we have no control over this governor. Okay, he asked us questions. We answered him honestly. How would we have any idea that he was going to, to, to ask us to do this? We, we didn't. We, we are out of control. They're being pressed into a specific course of action now. They don't want to go back to Egypt. They're going to have to go back to Egypt. And one of the things they know is we cannot control people. You can't change people. Only God can change people. Only God can change human hearts. Let's make it more practical. Husbands cannot change their wives. Wives cannot change their husbands. Children cannot change their parents. Parents cannot change their children. You can't make your boss change his mind. You can pray that people would change. You can ask God to change human hearts, but... If people change, it's because of God reminds me of one of our great philosophers today, Walt Disney <laughs> gets sort of irritated We watch a lot of Disney movies we've got you know, two year olds and four year olds and get sort of irritated sometimes with the the philosophy that is preached through Disney movies. Like can we just not can't we just watch a, a movie for entertainment? <laughs> Do we really need to know what the producers think about these big life questions? But so I was reminded of the philosopher Bulda the troll from the movie Frozen. <laughs> One of the songs that, that they sing is called Fixer Upper. These are the kinds of illustrations you get when you have a pastor who has a two year old and a four year old. <laughs> But let me, let me read you a line from this song. We've had to like correct this whole movie with our kids and, and, and tell them things that actually are not true. But here's, here's one that was particularly offensive. Uh, We're not saying you can change him because people don't really change. We're only saying that love is a force that's powerful and strange. People make bad choices if they're mad or scared or stressed. Throw a little love their way and you'll bring out the best. That's really cute. And really demonic. That's a little cute little demon right there. Anything offend you in that? Couple things. It took me a while to figure it out, but one line in particular really didn't like the first time I heard it. People don't really change. That's not true. That's not true. People do change. People can change. And the force behind that change is not love. The force behind that change is the gospel. And the force behind that change is God. And people can change. I've changed. My wife has changed. We're seeing our children change. I know many of you have changed because of God, because of the gospel. When we spend our time trying to change people, we eventually come to the conclusion that we cannot and we are often forced to the conclusion that the changes need to occur in us and we're going to need God's help. I spend all my time trying to change this other person and if God is gracious, in the end, I realize that actually I'm the one that needs to change. They're not the problem and I'm not the answer. I'm the problem. And change needs to happen in me. And the only way change is going to happen in me is with God's help. Verse 14. Skip ahead to verse 14. Listen to what Jacob says. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may He send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children... I am bereaved. So we're going to talk about what this means for Jacob and the change that he's going through. But this is the third lesson that this family is learning in regards to they have no control. They can't control the weather. They can't control this famine. They can't control the people that are around them. And they can't control their circumstances. And you hear that in Jacob here where he finally just surrenders to the circumstances in his life And he stops fighting about it because he recognizes I cannot, you cannot control your circumstances. Another way of saying this is that you cannot change the way things are. God can. And we can be obedient. And we can be faithful. And we can be prayerful. But we do not have the burden or the ability to change our circumstances. We need the Lord. Things are what they are. And circumstances must be dealt with as they are. Jacob did for a while, but he ceases here. We can complain. We can get bitter and angry. We can protest and argue. Or we can submit to our circumstances and deal with them in a way that honors God. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. So here we see the physical and material want that God has brought We see the harsh words, the harsh treatment. We see the solitude. And now we see this ordained necessity where they're learning that they are not in control. And it's hopeful because we are seeing signs of transformation. We're seeing that God is molding these men. He is bringing them to repentance. Two are highlighted in, in our chapter today. Judah and Jacob. If you've been tracking Judah... You see that verses 8 through 10 show us that Judah is becoming a changed man. Remember Judah from chapter 38? Remember the abominable behavior that he was guilty of in chapter 38? You remember that Judah is the one who came up with the plan to sell Joseph into slavery. And then in verses 8 through 10, we read that he emerges as a very surprising leader in this family. And he will end up being the leader in this family because Judah is the next promised child, the next forerunner of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the names of Jesus will be the Lion of Judah. And so God's been working with Judah and he's bringing him to repentance to where Judah stands up and says, listen, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. Benjamin. I will take sole responsibility for Benjamin. I'll get him back to you, Dad, as far as it depends on me. That is quite a way for Judah, isn't it? To talk about his father's favored son, knowing the plan that Judah came up with to deal with the former favorite son of Jacob. He's maturing. He's changing. And so is Jacob. One of the hints that Jacob is changing is that the author changes his, the name by which he addresses him in this chapter. A long time ago, God came to Jacob, which God often does with his men, and says, I'm going to change your name. And he changed Jacob's name from Jacob, which means wrestler and heel grabber, to Israel, which means struggles with God, in relationship with God, wrestling with God. But he's been called Jacob a lot since then by Moses, the author. And now in this chapter, he starts calling him Israel again. Why is the author calling him Israel again? To signal that a transformation is happening in his life. He's starting to act more like Israel than Jacob. He's putting off the old man. He's putting on the new man. And we see it most clearly in that verse I just read. Verse 14 of chapter 43 where Jacob finally gives in. He stops complaining. He stops whining and says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So what he is saying is, God's will be done. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you all go. And he's going to be back completely alone. I'm going to let you all go and I'm going to pray. That's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to pray that this man will be merciful and God will work and He'll bring you all home. But if I am bereaved of all my children, I am bereaved of all my children. What he's saying is, God, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to pray. But I'm going to accept whatever you bring my way. Thy will be done. Which is the greatest prayer you can ever pray if you're able to pray that with sincerity. God's will be done. Robert Candlish, in his commentary on the book of Genesis, spoke about Jacob here. The closing declaration, if I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved, is in the view of all the circumstances, an instance of acquiescence and the will of God, all but unparalleled. Jacob is now in extreme old age, and he is about to be left alone so far as the companionship of his sons is concerned. When long ago the ten brothers went from home to feed their flocks, Joseph was the comfort of his father's heart. Now, leave him Benjamin, and you leave him something to look to and to lean on after the flesh. When he gives up Benjamin, what remains? It is all. Henceforth, with Jacob, an exercise of mere and simple faith, enduring as seeing him who is invisible." It's like Job says in chapter 13, verse 15, though He slay me, I will praise Him. Job says, listen, I love God so much. It doesn't matter. And I I know He's in control of all these things in my life that are not going the way I want them to go. But I love God enough and I trust God enough that whatever God brings my way, whatever He brings my way, even if it's to kill me, I'm going to love Him and trust Him. I'm going to love him and trust him no matter what. That's the place where Jacob has got when he cries out and says, May God Almighty. So I'm going to trust you, Lord. You're a good God. You do all things well. I can't control this. So there's a good surrendering. There's a good giving up. There's a good entrusting himself to God. And he stops fighting God in his providence. I wonder if some of you are fighting God right now. And it may not be obvious to you because you may not be... um, outright cursing God. You may not be arguing with God. You may even be maintaining a lot of outward conformities to Christianity. But I wonder if in your heart you're just complaining and bitter and angry about how your life is going. Well, who are you complaining and bitter against? Friends, it would be God. Because he's ordained whatsoever may come to pass, even the difficulties you face. Your fight may be with God. Jacob's fight was with God. But here he returns to his senses. And he yields to God. He says, I'm going to praise you, gonna love you, gonna trust you, no matter what. You're a good God. You do all things well. And in the closing section, one more way that God stirs these boys to repentance. And it is through kindness. You've heard this about God. You know this about God. We'll read about it in Romans 2 in a minute. It is God's kindness that also leads us to repentance. What that means is that God does not deal with us the way that he should deal with us. This isn't contradictory to God dealing with us harshly or roughly. And he does it at the same time. God still deals with us harshly often to move us to repentance. But that is always in the context of His kindness because you are always receiving things from God that you do not deserve. Every single human being, lover of Christ or not, is always receiving blessing from God. So listen to the kindness. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. The men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. You know someone hates you when they take your donkeys. (laughs) So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, We came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, the steward, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man... "...had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves." And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there a good reminder when God or when your friend who loves God deals with you harshly that they're weeping behind the scenes It's what Joseph's doing he sees Benjamin and he can't even contain himself now one reason is obviously that this is his little brother this is his only full brother he hasn't seen him in over 20 years not since Benjamin was a little boy so he's really, he's really glad to see him. But seeing Benjamin speaks volumes of what God has done in this family. Benjamin is still alive. Because Joseph knows firsthand how these brothers have hated the favored son of Jacob and how they've dealt with him. Well, they haven't killed Benjamin. They love Benjamin. Judah, in fact, sticks up for Benjamin and will continue to stick up for Benjamin. Benjamin. It means that perhaps God is working at change in these men's lives. It means that Jacob trusts his sons and so he ultimately must be trusting the Lord if he let Benjamin go with these men. He's overwhelmed with compassion. Verse 31, Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and then by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians, which is kind of funny because Joseph's a Hebrew and they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Surprising kindness they received from Joseph. Like the surprising kindness that we receive from God. They didn't think they deserved it. They didn't expect it. In fact, when they were brought into the home, they thought, "Uh uh-oh. We're dead men. He's going to kill us. They're surprised by the kindness. First, they're reassured about the money from the steward of Joseph. Then they're reunited with Simeon. Then they're given water to wash their feet, which is a really big deal. That means they were not being treated as enemies, but they were being treated as friends because that was for friends. Then Joseph spoke kindly to them. It's not how Joseph spoke to them before. He was very harsh with them. But now he spoke kindly and says, How's your dad? How's your dad? How's the old man that you told me about? How's he doing? Is this your little brother? He's very kind and gracious to them. And then he gives them a feast. The ultimate kindness invites them to his table. I mean, think about where they've come from. They're eating top ramen back in Canaan. Starving. Skinny boys here. Not enough food to eat. And now they're at the king's table. More food than they know what to do with. Better tasting food than they've ever had before. Being brought to the king's table. And here's another step as God stirs them to repentance. Another step whereby their hearts are melted further by the power of genuine affection. We don't belong at this table. How can this man bring us in to this table we don't deserve this food how can this food be shared with us not only is the king not having them killed but he's bringing them into the most intimate room of the home for guests the dining room the table in terms of fellowship in your home is the most intimate place you have where you sit across from people where you look them in the eye, where you talk, where you speak kindly to one another, where you ask one another for things, where you pass food, where you share, where maybe you eat of the same loaf of bread. It's a place where fellowship is built. It's a place where love is shared. That's why it was so offensive when Judas betrayed Jesus. And the way Jesus talked about how offensive it was, was, I ate dinner with you. You sat at my table. We shared meals together. And you've betrayed me? These men don't belong at this table. And yet here they are at the table. So think about this. Some of you are already seeing a picture of something else. I mean, here are these men... Enjoying the benefits of Joseph's affection without actually knowing who he was. How many people today are enjoying the affection of God and have no idea who he is? The theologians have called this the common grace of God. The grace of God that is common in its scope. It is extended to all. It is a love of God that is extended to all. Matthew 5, God causes the sun to rise, the rain to fall, on the just and the unjust. The truth is that every human being that is alive right now is being shown grace from God. They are being given things that they do not deserve like breath in their lungs. And it is really grace from God. And it is really love from God. And the majority of the world is just spurning God and is not acknowledging God and is not thanking Him and is not crying out to Him, is not pleading to Him, but is very glad to enjoy all of His blessing and all of His benefits. Likewise, these brothers the next day will get up like nothing happened and set out on their way home. Which is the typical response, even today, of how people respond to the common grace of God. Romans 2.4 tells us what a big deal this is. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God uses kindness to move in these brothers and to stir them to repentance. And God uses kindness, kindness in the world today that should lead to repentance, but hearts are so hard and hearts are so rebellious that by nature we don't acknowledge God. We don't thank God. We don't turn to God. We gladly take the gifts and say, thank you very much and now I'm going to live how I want to live. If you are not a Christian, you are like Joseph's brothers at this table. You have sinned greatly against your elder brother, Jesus Christ, and he has been exceedingly kind to you. Exceedingly kind to you. God owes us nothing, God owes you nothing. God does not even owe us a chance of salvation. God owes us nothing. God could have judged Adam and Eve and sent them to hell immediately and he could do the same with you and with me. But rather, God blessed Adam and Eve, let them live, let them have a family, a family that has grown considerably. Look around. A family that has grown and polluted God's good world with sin. And the truth is, friends, because God owes us nothing that he could brush every single one of us into hell and it would be totally just. Because our sin against the holy God is really that great. God could brush every one of us into hell, and the angels could still wake up and sing tomorrow, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And while there is judgment to come, God has continually poured out His blessing on mankind, and all of you have received these blessings. A couple quick things. Let me give you one last quote from a pastor long gone named Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he says this, you are not a believer in Christ and yet you are still out of hell. That is the grace of God. You are not in hell, but you are on earth in good health and prosperity. That is the common grace of God. The vast majority of those who read these words are living in comfortable homes or apartments. That is common grace. You are not fleeing as refugees along the highways of a country desolated by war. That is common grace. You come home from your job and your child runs to meet you in good health and spirits. That is common grace. You are able to put your hand in your pocket and give the child a quarter or half a dollar for an allowance. It is common grace that you have such abundance. You go into your house and sit down to a good meal. That is common grace. On the day that you read these words, there are more than a billion and a half members of the human race who will go to sleep without enough to satisfy their hunger. The fact that you have enough is common grace. You do not deserve it. And if you think that you deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath which you have so richly earned, you merely show your ignorance of spiritual principles." But God is gracious. So God's grace is common in its scope. But God's grace is also uncommon. It's uncommon in its quality. The quality of God's grace, especially to His children. We haven't words to describe it. Romans 5, 6-8, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This death of Jesus Christ proves the scope and the quality of God's love a common grace, uncommon love. And as usual, when we read God's Word and are confronted with God's Word, the question we have to always ask ourselves is, how am I going to respond? How am I going to respond to this God? Well, I'll tell you how you should respond. You should love Him. You should love one another. That's what Jesus said over and over again, didn't He? Love God, love one another, and loving one another, you're loving God. But love God, how much should I love God? Well, with your whole heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. So we're called to love God totally. Totally. And any love for anything else or anyone else, secondary, subordinate to this love that we have for God. Everything that we have is his. Everything that we are is his. We're to love him in that way. This is how God is moving Joseph's brothers to repentance. What is it going to take? What is it going to take for you and I to repent? What will God need to do? How far? How much pressure? how many circumstances, how many lessons before we turn? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the encouragement we find in Your Word to repent. God, for our sins, we ask that You would give us the grace to turn to You. Give us the spiritual ability to forsake our sin and to say we're done and to cling to You. Give us the grace to stop loving things that we should not love and to start loving You more and the way that we should. And work in our hearts deeply, God, so that we would become more and more a people who bring You glory and bring You honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.